Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Hey folks, it's Mike here. Well, this is very exciting. So uh, if you've just finished listening to the three-parter for the Thames Towpath Murderer, this, as mentioned, is the extra part afterwards. Uh, Obviously, with parts one and two, I didn't want to give away a lot of stuff that was in the episode. Uh, Part three, the same. There wasn't really enough space, so I've saved it for this. So it's not essential. You don't have to listen to this at all. But this is kind of uh, the extra mile for the three-parter. (gasps) Oh! I can say whatever I like now. This is fantastic. Right. Also, for me, this is great because normally I'm recording early, 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 early in the morning. So, you know, before the birds are up and before everyone comes on the towpath and before any neighbours put their engines on. Whereas it's Sunday afternoon. I've just finished. It took about three and a half days, uh, 14, 16 hours a day to finish editing uh, part three. Because uh, I've worked out it's about 20... It takes an hour to edit about 20 seconds worth of Murder Mile. Which is killing me! So, but this is good. Uh, this is Sunday afternoon. Uh, I've just finished editing. Uh, it's relaxed. It's a nice day outside. I've got the windows and doors open. I don't care what sound is made. There's a kid going past now. Going, mummy, mummy, mummy. When are you going to buy me an electric scooter? And it's like, you can see the mummy going, no, not going to happen at all. So... Man going past shouting, doesn't matter. I'm not going to edit that out. This is all good. So I've made my tea. I've got some Bickies, which are uh, Tesco's uh, milk chocolate Oaties, which are very good. They're like the cheapy hobnobs, but I think they're still good. So if you're ready, let's tuck in. So uh, some things we may have gone over before, but let's let's whiz through everything anyway. So as you know, uh, both victims, Barbara Songhurst, 16 years old. Uh, if you're on Patreon, I've showed you some pictures of there of Daniel, her mother, and Gertrude, uh, sorry, Daniel, her father, and Gertrude, her mother. There's pictures on there. Um, they lived at 75 Princes Road, but as mentioned in this episode, they lived originally on Sydney Road, about three doors down. So Sydney Road to uh, Princes Road in Teddington, where Barbara lived and Sydney Road, where they originally lived, that's only about a mile away. It's pretty close, and that's where Alfred Charles Whiteway lived as well. So they they literally lived three doors down. Uh, There's no real uh, connection apart from that in there. As mentioned, that uh, Danny Songhurst, who was Barbara Songhurst's older brother, uh, married June Knight, who was originally 
uh, Alfred Charles Whiteway's girlfriend. They, do you know, do you know, one of his girlfriends kind of disappeared off. He wasn't really that bothered about it. Do you know, it happens. Uh, so there's no real connection between them except that uh, he obviously knew Barbara Songhurst when she, as mentioned, when she was about six years old. Uh, but they'd left about nine years ago, hadn't seen her since, according to them. And do you know what? There's no reason why. Um, he doesn't seem to have been fixated by her at all. He doesn't have, seem to have followed her at any point. It's just they kind of... There was a connection, but don't forget, this is kind of a small town. People knew each other, so uh, there would be connections like that all the time. But um, had, as mentioned, had his eyesight been better, he would have... Uh, he would have noticed that it was Barbara Sonkers, but he didn't. So uh, we won't get too much into her life because we've already done that before in the episode. But as mentioned, nice girl, came from a difficult background, but all the family were raised really well. Lots of brothers and sisters. They all looked after each other and they all kind of went out to work when they could to earn money for mum and dad. So, you know, lovely people. As mentioned, she was just under five foot tall. She was five foot eleven and a quarter. Uh, slim brunette almost childlike in her kind of appearance which is interesting because that's the kind of type that as mentioned Alfred Charles Whiteway likes whether he saw her it's unlikely that he saw her coming up the towpath and thought oh young brunette that's exactly what I like it's more than likely that he could hear it hear the voice he'd already seen girls on bikes going up and down and he thought you know he can hear a female voice and that's what he went for. He seems to be he seems to be powered by urges as opposed to a specific type. Because if you look at uh, Patricia Birch, who is the lady who he attacked in uh, Windsor Great Park, she was 49 years old. Whereas obviously Kathleen was 14, Barbara's 16 and you've got Christine who's 18. Uh, as mentioned as well, Christine, uh, 18 years old, really good friends with uh, uh, Barbara Songhurst. As mentioned, like basically like like sisters together, spent all of their time together. I don't think there's really much that we can say about both of them that kind of was missing from the episode. Pretty much everything was there. So Alfred Charles Whiteway, let's try and get into some details that weren't mentioned in the episode. So uh, he was about five foot nine. Uh, 170 pounds so relatively well built even though he's not he wasn't big uh but because he spent a lot of time spent a lot of time bodybuilding and was a builder as well he's you know he, he was uh, quite powerfully built love weightlifting uh with many of the guys who knew him uh as a brickie being a bricklayer uh they said that he could easily climb a scaffold using just his hands which is a hell of a feat because like I've tried doing push-ups before, and I can't even do one. I'm so weak, weak in the uh, the arms. But yeah, no, apparently he could. So um, very skilled with his hands as well. As mentioned before, briefly mentioned in this episode, a couple of things are cut out, but briefly mentioned uh, some of his jobs included cutting down trees in Bushy Park. So had a lot of experience using an axe. Obviously, being a builder, would have had a lot of experience using various tools as well. Uh, wasn't particularly good at his good at his job wasn't really that focused had a tendency to bunk off quite a lot uh would come in late would leave early would uh especially on lunch times would disappear off to the parks uh and come back late and as mentioned in the episode uh he would disappear off with his on his bike with his saddlebag which had uh knives and his axe in there and he would spend his time throwing it at trees uh 
I didn't get this into the episode. This was something I really liked. So obviously I mentioned about his uh, his clothes. So he always had the kind of crumpled brown shirt. He had the brown leather gloves, his cycling gloves that he used. Quite often he'd wear a green gabardine trousers and the gabardine jacket, which he left behind at the murder scene. Um, I put that in there as a red herring. So you'd think, ooh, green gabardine raincoat. Ooh, that's going to bring a lot of uh, information to the story. But it doesn't. It's, it was pretty much a dead uh, piece of information. It's They found it. They got there. They couldn't tell whose it was. There wasn't any fingerprints on it. Obviously, this is the era before DNA. Uh, had some blood on it, but it was the girls because he dropped it on the floor in uh, one of the blood pools. Uh, so it kind of really didn't go anywhere. But the shoes that he did wear, I, I've mentioned in there, were brown leather with crepe soles. So not like crepe paper, but kind of like a, a, a thicker crepe. Um, and people would refer to these as brothel creepers, which is very nice. Very nice. I, I think that's uh, kind of ironic that he would use brothel creepers. Um, not really a lot more we can say about his family. I kind of covered all that in the episode. Obviously, his mum's working incredibly hard. She works as a domestic servant. She's got... I think, uh, why is it eight, eight, nine children? Yeah, obviously one of them, one of them, well, one of them was described as feeble-minded, which I've put in the episode as mentally disabled because feeble-minded is kind of the 1950s version. Uh, one of them had uh, suffered from nerves, they said, which was shell shock, uh, having been uh, posted overseas because of national service. Obviously the husband was a labourer, uh, has terminal cancer. So, you know, she's in a right predicament. Life is really difficult for her. Um, when he was at school, he's, even though they said he was of above average in intelligence, they said it, it just wasn't satisfactory. He couldn't focus. Uh, a school friend of his, Albert, Albert Newcomb, uh, said he was very much a bully uh, and was just focused on girls, really. Girls and uh, slightly obsessed with knives. Uh, oh, I'm going to have a swig of tea. Uh, I removed most of his back history about the jobs that he had in here. Obviously, I've got loads of info on that, but I kind of... This was a long episode. This this was pulling in at about 50 minutes, so uh, I kind of wrestled with it and got... I think I got it down to about 35, but it's still, it's still a little bit longer than I would have liked, but the uh, problem is there's a lot of information in there. So I took out a lot about the jobs that he had. Uh, he, so he'd worked as a greengrocer's assistant a paint sprayer over at Compton & Co aircraft manufacturers uh, along the Thames around the time just after the war, especially where Nelly lived. Um, it looks very nice now, but opposite Ellie's, Nelly's house on Lower Kings Road was a large power station. And next to that in Cambry Gardens, it looks very nice now, but actually that was an aircraft manufacturers as well. So uh, he was an aircraft, a paint sprayer there uh, he kept leaving of his own accord. Uh, he was a lobby driver's assistant for a while, uh, obviously a labourer in a timber merchant's over in Teddington, but was dismissed for bad timekeeping. This is all coming up to the, the point of the attacks. Uh, he was a tree feller, as in someone who knocks down trees in Bushy Park. As mentioned, Bushy Park is where he met Nellie, his wife. Uh, and it's the park that Barbara and Christine would cycle through many times to, to go to and from the Thames. It's the quickest route. This is not to suggest that he'd seen them before, but 
these are all local people so they're kind of used to hanging out in that area and you know it, it it's likely that he would have seen both of them many times before but whether he was kind of attracted to them or you know i mean they were girls so he probably was uh he was still working around the time of the murder so um up until the oxshot rape which was kathleen ringham uh the day after that he'd been working at decca records in new malden where he worked as a packer um and a lot of people had said that uh, he actually bought so the gurkha knife he bought off a guy called john connett who worked with him there and they said that he um alfred had a habit of like even when he was working in the factory he'd bring his knife with him he'd have it in his boot or he'd have it on his bike as always and he'd be throwing his knife practicing it at uh, packing cases uh when he was working for costain over in bushy park as well they had a lot of timber logs out there and he was doing the same there he was using his axe against the logs uh it's unlikely when i first looked at this file and opened it up i was like the way it was written i was like this doesn't make sense because it had been written as if he was throwing his axe at the girls to knock them off the bike and i was just like that you know that take incredible skill and i understand that he's practicing uh, a lot using that but that's just bizarre there's no way that could have happened and then actually when you look into it you realize actually he wasn't he was knocking them around the back of the head with the axe uh to render them unconscious but we we get more into that later on as mentioned he'd got a bit of a criminal record but um nothing nothing to do with violence or uh sexual assault or rape all of it seems to be theft which I find kind of interesting. So 4th of June 1943, Feltham Juvenile Court. He was charged with stealing torches and a watch from a dwelling house, i.e. a house, to the value of £27, so quite a lot. He was bound over for a year and fined £5. Uh, he was aged 12 at the time. I've written 12, actually. Hang on, no. He would have been 11 because his birthday is in June. Uh, 29th of September 1943 so we've still got 10 years before the murders here he was uh, charged with stealing a purse and the contents from a dance hall he was bound over for two years and fined five pounds again he was aged 12 18th of February 1946 my birthday but not the 1946 bit uh, he was uh, Feltham Juvenile Court he was charged with stealing a bicycle and there as mentioned uh, he was so I was looking behind in case it was the coal boat. Um, he was charged with he was sent to Cotswold approved school, which, as mentioned, uh, it was uh, a borstal. It was a place where if you were a bad lad and you had emotional problems, that's where they sent you to go. Um, it was more about corrective punishment than that's the boat being bashed around by another boat. It happens a lot. Uh, that's the the when you're sent there it's all about corrective punishment as opposed to trying to work out what your problems is is are not even correct words there um 1948 22nd of july in uh it charged with stealing a pair of gloves from a motor car and stealing food from a grocer's shop uh because he was uh 17 years old then therefore classified as an adult instead of being sent back to the Borstal, which was where he'd, he'd escaped from there three times. This time, because he was old enough, they were like, right, we're sending you to prison. So he was charged uh, with two counts of six months in prison to be served consecutively. Uh, and then 21st of April 1952, obviously just, after, uh, just before his daughter was born, 
again fell to magistrate's court, uh, charged with stealing clothes and jewellery from a house worth £20, and that was another six months in prison. Uh, he was released 23rd of August 1952, so that's what's that, almost a year before the murder, uh, and he was... And that was... Uh, he, they said he was unsuitable for corrective training, i.e. not not very good at kind of training him not to do what uh, criminal acts. Someone's going past with their boat. With lots of shit music playing. See, normally I'd have to wait for this when I'm doing a podcast, but today, don't care. Don't care. This can stay in. So, uh, as mentioned before, uh, he had a couple of girlfriends. Um... One was June, someone's going past and they think that they're really great, but unfortunately, it's a boater who's all by himself, which is pretty sad. Whenever someone plays music by, music loud, it's always because they're by themselves. Yep, he's got, his, he's, he's got the music on and he's bobbing away to his music and he's looking left and right, hoping someone will see him, but it's a bit sad. Uh, so, uh, obviously he meant, I mentioned in this episode that he met uh, his wife here, so uh, Nellie Mae Jones, who would become Nellie Mae Whiteway. Uh, when they met, she was 16. Uh, I've written this into the story. It's kind of... Uh, I quite enjoyed writing it and, and editing it this way to make it look like it was an attack, but really it wasn't. And this, the, the, the whole point of this is... We'll go through some of the statements in a bit, but when you read some of his, the statements of the attack, he's... He's quite brutal with what he does, but he has a sensitive side as well. So I was trying to get this across in how he met her to give you a link into how uh, how uh, she kind of was okay with him being there. It's kind of, it's an interesting relationship. I, as mentioned, I went to uh, uh, Eleven King Lower Kings Road to have a look at the house where Nelly lived and the alley at the back, and that's when the the, the person came out and was like. <gasps> They didn't say anything, but they just looked at me taking pictures of the house. And I was like, oh, dear, what do I do? Luckily, I went back a, a couple of weeks later uh, and took her photo. So, yeah, they, they were together for about two years. Uh, they they got pregnant to force the kind of the marriage because she was under age. He was 20 at the time. She was 16, so she couldn't get married without, a par- without her mum's permission. Her dad had literally just passed away that year. Uh, so that could explain why she was kind of looking for someone to love. Uh, n- she doesn't really give that many statements, to be honest, except later on when the when the case is, is going forward. Uh, obviously, he met her in Bushy Park. I'd kind of edited this to make it look like it was kind of going to be attack, but it, obviously it wasn't. But it's still him. When you When you read the statements, he is there. He's watching from a distance. He's on his bike. He's waiting. He's following. He follows her like a, a mile... 1.2 miles all the way home and waits until she's alone just to talk to her. So uh, his approach to girls is very much the same as his kind of uh, attack approach. Um, they were married 27th of February 1951 and not long later. Obviously, it's a shotgun wedding, married at Kingston Registry Office and their daughter... Uh, was born uh, three months later, 20th of May, at Teddington Hospital. Uh, this was mentioned in the story as well, that Nellie, his wife, was heavily pregnant uh, by the time of his arrest as well. So she was about she was about six to seven months pregnant at the time. Uh, but uh, they were unable to live apart. His mum wouldn't... Her mum wouldn't allow him in the house. Nellie was living at home with her mum and their child 
and obviously Alfred was was on and off working so he couldn't afford a house as well he was still living with his parents so that made everything really difficult uh, also made their sex life very difficult as well uh, what else do we got let's do, 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 do. so as mentioned he had a real obsession with knives he had quite a few knives uh, we've got the axe in there so the axe was cheap yellow handled with a black black headed axe uh, as mentioned it was about 20 inches long uh, with a kind of a, a, a yellow uh, adhesive tape around the handle uh, and the head of it was about 8 inches wide with a curved kind of back to it and that's the bit he would use to hit the girls across the head he also had a Gurkha knife which he purchased of John Canaan over a Decker uh, I think it was said that John really didn't want to uh, part with it but Alf kept pestering him and offered him uh, five shillings for it uh and this was the one this was the one that uh alf was throwing against the trees and he lost it so um there's actually two knives there's a, sh- a scout's sheath knife as well which the police believe was the one that probably that that uh, most certainly uh did the stabbings uh but obviously because they'd found the Gurkha knife and they hadn't found the sheath knife, they were using that as kind of leverage with him, saying, you know, well, we found this one. It doesn't mean we can't find the other one. Uh, so, uh, middle of May, the date is a little bit vague on this. Uh, a gentleman called Roy Tarp. I was going to put this in the story, but it just it, it slowed the story down, so I deliberately took it out. So a gentleman called Roy Tarp, who was a teacher, was bicycling along the towpath on the Hamside, uh, and he saw Alf, this was down by Old Hamlock, he saw Alf throwing an axe at a tree. And he stopped there and he was like chatting to Alf and he said Alf was very friendly. As mentioned, he could be quite personable. And he was like, uh, out of curiosity, Roy said, can I have a go at that? And he's like, yeah, of course. So him and Roy spent a little while like throwing axes at tree, uh, an axe at the tree and the knives and doing some practice and they had some good fun. And they were there for about 10 minutes and then Roy missed the tree with the Gurkha knife. And he said uh, it landed in a gravel pit. So the lock, it's an old lock, it's not used anymore, uh, covered with trees, but there's also gravel pits. So it's kind of uh, depressions in the in the soil covered with gravel which is full of water and it went in there they took off their socks and shoes and went searching for it but they couldn't find it roy uh, apologized for the lock of the knife uh alf uh, was like yeah not a problem at all and kind of went on so this was the one that they found later on uh i went down to the location i have the the spot of where the knife was found by the police on a map but the problem is same as the murder location when i went back there it was all really overgrown like back in the 50s it wasn't but now it's it's been left to kind of fester for a long time so I, I couldn't get in there i couldn't get to see the tree but i could see which tree it was i just couldn't see it uh but roy tarp didn't get to hear alf's name but he gave a good description and the description was exactly the same as everyone else five foot nine dark hair well built distinctive cleft on chin uh, acne scarring on chest and face and was wearing a brown leather gloves um have another swig of tea so moving on to uh, the rape of kathleen ringham on 24th of may 1952 uh, so what should we go let's do so this was the one on oxshot heath which is about nine miles away from teddington so if this sounds weird it's because i'm leaning into the screen i should really make this bigger shouldn't i 
I normally make the text nice and big so I can read it properly, but I've just realized because I'm not reading the script, I've left it at normal tiny size. Um, so yep, Kathleen mentioned that um, that day he was wearing blue dungarees, but he looked as if he'd come off a building site. He got a blue bike and a blue uh, bl and a black saddle bag. Um, that day, Nelly said that she was meant to be meeting Alf in Teddington at Teddington swimming baths. Uh, she left home at about eleven a.m. She arrived at eleven thirty. He was late. So she window shopped for a bit and he arrived 10 minutes late on his bike and he was only wearing blue jeans to so the bottom to his dungarees and the top half of his body was bare. He wore no shirt. So this would have been after the attack. Um, uh, when he was arrested, when he was finally uh, questioned about this, about the police and he finally confessed to it. Interestingly, he confessed to Detective Inspector Bramwell about the rape, who was the guy who originally said, no, that's not him, let him go. Uh, Alfred said, I've been asked if I assaulted the 14-year-old girl on Oxshot Heath uh, on Whit Sunday, uh, and I've been told... Um, and I've been told I'm going to be put up for identification to see if the girl can pick me out. The answer is yes, I did assault the girl. There was no need for her to come for identification parade. She told me she was 14. I don't know what made me did it, do it. Um, they did put him up for identification parade anyway. Uh, they had to. It made sense. Uh, he said, this is this is what he said about the attack. This is one of his statements. Uh, I was out on my bicycle, a blue one. Um, what you'll notice with some of the statements is there's some vagary in there and there's things that might not add up and, you know, dates may be wrong, but, you know, you have to kind of work your way through it to find the truth. Uh, I was on my bicycle, a blue one. I was just riding around on Whit Sunday. I noticed her walking along the road and she had her dog with her. Uh, she went up to the footpath in the woods and I followed her. I had a wood chopper in my saddlebag, that's his axe, and I lost her in the woods. As I was looking around for her, I made up my mind to seduce her. Don't forget, that's his words. When he when he says uh, rape, he always says seduce. Because uh, in his mind, that is seduction. Um, and I got my chopper out of my saddlebag, as you do when you're seducing someone. I caught up with her on the footpath, and I hit her on the head somewhere on the back edge of the chopper. She was half stunned. I half carried her into the bushes. She was dressed in a pair of blue pair of blue shorts shirt dressed in a pair of blue shorts and a white blouse i told her to lay down and i left my bike in the bushes i went back to the path to get it uh, i told her to take her shorts off and she refused so i took her shorts and knickers off for her it's interesting the way he says i took them off for her as in you know, he forced them off uh i took my white shorts down and laid and laid on her and seduced her again using the word seduced she did not struggle i think she was probably frightened to death of me uh after i had done after i had done her he uses the word done quite a few times meaning to have sex uh or to commit rape uh i stood up and took my shirt off i had been kissing her she told me she was feeling giddy then i helped her dress and she she told me to sit down with her for a while as she was feeling giddy I stayed about 10 minutes with her. I think this was all before uh, 12 o'clock, which it was because he met his wife uh, at about half past 11. Uh, then I put the chopper back in my saddlebag and I went 
uh, to see if there was anyone coming along the towpath. I didn't see anybody, so I went back to the girl and she asked me to see her to the towpath, to the footpath. She was shaky on her feet. She asked me not to leave her as she felt ill. She sat down for a minute on the footpath and I grabbed my bike and ran off into the woods. There was nothing I want to add except I am sorry. I just can't think why I did it. Hmm. So that was his side of the story. Uh, obviously, when when it went to the murder trial, the assault on Kathleen Ringham, uh, she attended court. She stood in the witness box. She gave her name. She was very good. Don't forget, she's only 14 years old. Uh, and that his defence objected to her testimony, saying it was immater- immaterial to the trial. Because obviously it's not connected to the murder case. But, you know, if you can prove that... They'd already proved that he'd attacked using uh, the axe in a very, in a very similar way. But uh, Justice Hibbery and Rawlinson agreed. And, and that particular evidence was barred. So this was going to make it really difficult for the case. Because obviously you, you haven't got the axe anymore. And also you haven't got Kathleen Ringham's testimony either. Um, uh, here's Kathleen's statement instead. Uh, so with Sunday morning about 10.30 a.m., which makes more sense. That's the time I went with with uh, this story because that's that marries up with everything else. Uh, I went for went, went for a walk with my dog. Went to Oxshot Heath. I saw a man on a blue bike with a blue shirt go by. I've used a lot of this in the episode. Uh, that man uh, was the accused, so she pointed to him. After I left the road, I went down a footpath. It was a quiet footpath. Uh, when I had gone some way down, I heard a bicycle behind me. I then hurt, felt a blow on the back of my head. It hurt me. I now have a scar on the back of my head. I saw a chopper by his bicycle, which is uh, the axe. After I was hit, I was dragged into the bushes. He said it would be all right and that he was going to do me. I lay down in the bushes and he said he wanted a woman. That's that phrase that keeps coming up. He used that later on. Uh, as mentioned in the episode, he goes, oh, I just wanted a woman. He he says that a lot to 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 the women uh, and then i tried to keep him talking in the hope that some of the persons would come along so that marries up with his statement about her wanting him to stay there uh, so he doesn't want her she doesn't want him there she just wants him to be there uh to be seen when someone comes along and then they can see him and then he'll be arrested um he asked me to remove my shorts i said no he tried to pull up my blouse and i tried to push him off uh uh, and he put his hands, which were uh, wearing brown gloves at the time, around my throat. There was some pressure with his hands and I couldn't breathe. So uh, as seen, he's not trying to kill them. What he's trying to do is trying to um, keep them in a kind of a semi-conscious state so he can he can do what he feels he needs to do. Obviously, he can't, he can't rape them if they're, they're screaming and um, they're pushing him off. So that's what he's doing there. Um... Uh, where did I get to? Uh, he said he wanted to do me and he tried to remove my shorts, but I pushed him away by putting my hands on his chest. He pushed my hands away and took my shorts off. He also took my knickers off. I hope my neighbours don't hear this. Uh, he moved on top of me and placed his person inside my private parts. Uh, person is another word for penis. Uh, and it hurt me inside. I said, you're hurting me, please get off. He said it would be all right. I did not scream as it was a lonely spot and I was worried he would put his hands around my throat again. Which kind of makes sense. He's got an axe with him and he's already strangled her once. So obviously she'd be in fear of her life. Uh, He got off. 
I tried to get up, but I felt dizzy and my head was hurting. I got dressed whilst holding on to the bushes. After I dressed, he went back to the path saying he wanted to see if anyone was coming. He came back running and said there was someone coming, which there was. Uh, and he went off on his bicycle in the opposite direction. Uh, she, there was an elderly man approaching. Uh, he took her to the hospital. Uh, she had three stitches in the head. Luckily, uh, her skull wasn't fractured. Uh, and she was able to give a really good description of the, uh, her attacker. But, as mentioned, this was his first known attack. Uh, she got a good description of him, but don't forget, he is no charges on his sheet for which you'd expect for kind of rape assault anything like that there's no perversion in there it's all theft so there's no reason why the police would go it must be this guy police would literally look at the record and go well it doesn't match up because you would be looking for someone who's got a long history of this especially given the kind of attack that he did which really does make me think that there must be a lot more attacks out there that we just don't know about and we'll probably never know about because they probably weren't reported uh it wasn't mentioned in the story but this was kind of key so as mentioned before he ran off on his bike but he seems to he seems to be aware of the fact so this is makes me think that this would have happened before he seems to be aware of the fact that his blue bike and his black saddle bag is something that makes him identifiable so what he does again, he gets his bike and his, uh, his bag, he hides them in some bushes, and then he comes out. So uh, a lady uh, in the park on Oxshot Heath called Hilda Copland, uh, she saw him, she didn't see him attacking, but she saw him kind of running through the park. She identified him. She later uh, attended an ID parade. So uh, an identification parade is basically where you, you stand uh, a series of people up, one perpetrator and, you know, five or six non-identified non uh non-guilty people can't think of the word at the moment uh and then basically you have to pick them out i think they do it all by vid by video now uh by pre-record but um there she came along and she she positively identified alfred whiteway uh and when he was fleeing the scene because he hadn't got his bike and his bag with him anymore as he was going along copsom lane uh uh, he flagged down a motorist, a guy called Eric Marsland was there and gave him a lift back to Kingston. Uh, said he was a very nice chap. And again, Eric gave an exact description of what Alfred Whiteway looked like and positively identified him as well. So that kind of backed up everything that Kathleen had already said. But by this point, because none of them knew his name, it, the case had kind of already stalled until we get to Patricia Birch. So that's when things start turning around. Oh, whew, I'm out of breath. Uh, so, yep, I've already done the bit about the days before the murder. So this is all about, I've got bits about, what well, you know, where Catholic, uh, where Barbara and Christine were. We covered that in episode one. That was pretty thorough on that. I pretty much didn't leave much out. As mentioned, I mentioned about all of her clothes. There's nothing really on there that... In the end, I know I mentioned that uh, Christine's knickers were missing, but they could have been swept away. Uh, they could have just not been found in th in the uh, the murder location. Um, they weren't found again, so it's it's, it's unlikely that uh, Alfred would have taken them. Also, he, he never took any souvenirs from any other victims, so why would he start then? They weren't found at his house. He didn't know Christine, so uh, yeah, it's an odd one. Uh, I've got all the information about his 
his bike and their bikes, which we don't need anymore. Uh, obviously, Christine's bike was found uh, just below the towpath. If, if you're, uh, I put all these, all of the, if if you've subscribed to Patreon, there's all the videos on there, all the pictures on there. Some of the videos are also on my YouTube account. There's one of them coming with this episode, which is at the mouth of the. I basically walked down the slope at Teddington Lock, the grassy slope, and I'm at the point where the bodies are laid into the water, uh, and that's the point where Christine's bike was found. Barbara's bike would have been dumped there as well, but they never found it. Uh, it's likely that because of the because of it's a tidal stretch of the water and there's lots of dredges going up and down, it could have been shoved in anywhere. It could literally be anywhere, so they don't know. Um, the campsite. Let's not go over that again. We've kind of did that in Ep One and Two. Uh, as mentioned, uh, John Allen Wells and uh, his pals had fun with the girls the night before. All of them were innocent, even though one of them had uh, an axe for chopping up wood. It was proved not to be the, the the axe itself. But apart from that, that's a very innocent night. Uh, I, I put that in as it's kind of the last time she was seen, but also it's a bit of a red herring as well. It makes you think, ooh, they must have something to do with it, but they didn't. Uh, neither did Basil Nixon and his lady friend Sheila Danes, who uh, saw them just before, just before the murder at Old Hamlock. The last people to have seen them alive. Uh, so, what else have we got? Um, so, night of the murder. Let's let's whiz through this night of the murder. As mentioned, the girls leave the uh, the picnic where the boys are they leave about 11:15 they're witness driving away they've got a single light um this is the, this is the the detail that i found fascinating about the case and it's rarely picked up on it's 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 something that if you look at a lot of documentaries about this there's a few and especially the one on murder maps they get it really badly wrong they say the, the girls split up and that's why he attacked them because they were uh, separated but they weren't separated at all it's the fact that his his vision is bad he's got bad eyesight you know he's like myself he struggles to read just anything in front of him uh struggles to see distance so he can't recognize relatives over a distance as well and don't forget this is night there's no moon there's no street light so it's the worst place for him to attack and don't forget the attacks on kathleen ringham and patricia birch are all broad daylight all broad daylight, all in the park. He gets them on a pat isolated path and then he drags them into the bushes. Whereas here, he's hiding in the bushes and they're coming up a dark towpath. So, and even though the light's not bright, it's the only thing he sees and it's right in front of him. So all he sees is the light. Um, he believes that there's only one girl. Uh, obviously, there isn't. There's two uh, so he's he's standing behind the tree. He hears the rickety bike coming up. He gets his axe out. He's wit wit. It's said that he was at Oldham Lock prior to that. The girls would have gone past Oldham Lock a couple of times to go to Petersham Meadow and go back home, which they did many times that day. So it is likely that he may have seen them that day, but he may not have spotted them, and he may just have thought great there's lots of you know lots of young attractive girls going back and forth on the towpath because don't forget it's the weekend before the coronation so it's busy but by 11 30 at night it was dead there was just a handful of people heading home uh so for him that seemed to be the 
the perfect place to kind of do his attack, but a rape, not a murder. Uh, as mentioned uh, in episode one, Christine had a lamp on her bike, a bike light, but the bulb had blown, so she couldn't get any batteries to go with it. Barbara um, had no batteries, but she was able to borrow a lamp off Peter Peter Warren, I believe his name was. But don't forget, this is 1950s. The lamps aren't great. Not like our ones where, you know, I bought a cheap one the other day and it shines right to the end of the canal. It's huge. Uh, these ones, you were lucky if you could see at the end of your end of your tire, if you're lucky. Uh, so um, as he's uh, as they're kind of trundling along, uh he's standing behind the tree he only sees uh one girl has the axe swings it as she's passing so he clips the back of her head um as with the other girls it's, it's only it's only enough to render her unconscious he does it twice uh and with christine he does it four times hey i was just being quiet because my neighbors came back yeah imagine them listening to me talking about all this yeah uh so uh yes um i think we've kind of covered this in episode three you know they both got he 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 thought there was one there was actually two it kind of messed up his plan christine screamed uh he panicked he got his axe hit her four times over the head to, to as he says to shut her up uh and then you know because he is a rapist he was like well do you know two girls one one of me and he can do it as well i had to do my research on this i mentioned this before about about whether he whether he, physically he could actually do that and actually yes he could it's you know he could get an erection um rape one girl ejaculate get an erection again or keep an erection ejaculate again so you know within a space of 10 minutes so uh, that's why both girls had the same semen inside them um I like little details like that where you have to go. Oh, is this possible? And then, and then it takes me off on a little trail. Although, uh, I pray that no one looks at my internet history because then all of a sudden they'll go, "Why is he looking at whether whether young boys can ejaculate twice?" Uh, <laughs> uh... Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Oh, so mentioned uh, Barbara's body was discovered the next morning. Let's not do too much on this because we kind of covered this. Uh, she was found. Uh, 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 oh. I've just my energy's just done it. It's just dropped again. Uh, she was found just off Radnor Gardens. So if you, if you go onto my YouTube account or if you're a Patreon subscriber, you would have already got it. Uh, I've shot some videos over at uh, Radnor Gardens. So you can see where the body was found. It's a real distance and on the opposite side of the Thames. Uh, and then it was taken to St Helena Pier. There's a video of that as well. Head over there. You got loads of videos, loads of pictures. Uh, as let's not do that yet. Uh, it's easy to see why, uh, even though uh, Basil and uh, Sheila, who were the last witnesses to see them, even though they walk past the immediately past the crime scene, you can't scoot around it. There literally is. Uh, woods and gravel path to the left, Thames to the right. It's a small towpath. You can't go either way. If you meet someone either way, you either have to wait or you have to brush against each other. Um, they would have walked past it. They said they walked past around 12 o'clock. Timings of people around this time are a little bit difficult because most people didn't have wristwatches. Wristwatches hadn't become a thing yet. Uh, you had pocket watches, but they were outdated. So most people just kind of relied on, you know, at uh, the times or if they had transistor radios they'd rely on that to kind of get a rough rough approximation uh with this they'd obviously heard church bells in the background so they were like okay a couple of minutes ago would have been 11 soon it's you know you're able to work out your timing by that uh they walked past the murder location at teddington lock it was dark there's no lights uh even in daytime it's kind of quite shadowy and when you when you look at it it's easy to see why they didn't see the blood stains on the floor the bloodied shoes there were four kind of in the grassy woodland uh, it's very overgrown now the murder location but back in those days it was quite clear um uh, uh and the green uh, macintosh on the floor do you know what they may have just walked past it uh maybe alfred was still in the bushes at the time with the girls. So maybe he hadn't. Maybe he'd dumped the bike. Maybe he hadn't dumped the girls yet. Maybe, he, maybe he'd maybe he raped one of the girls. He hadn't raped the other one. Or maybe he'd stabbed both, but he hadn't disposed of them in the water. So maybe that's why they didn't see the Mac, because maybe it wasn't there yet. Maybe he didn't dump it. Maybe he didn't misplace it. So uh, there's all these things to do with timings that are hard to work out. But... Um, Yep, they found uh, obviously the girls, both girls' blood on the coping stones, which is the kind of the the stones that make up the uh, lock wall and the timbers down to the lock uh, waterway as well. It's quite a steep drop as well. Uh, I they they've put in some steps there now, some aluminium steps, but back then there wasn't. It was just straight. Uh, I've got photos online of what it looks like now and what it used to look like as like as well. Uh, what else we got? I won't go into the autopsy details now because we've kind of already covered that in episodes two. But as mentioned, they're very consistent with each other. They're very consistent with the other attacks as well. So the semicircular wound uh, to the side of the face and the back of the head. Um, these are all similar. They wouldn't... Uh, they. There was a, a, a crushing impact. They would have uh, needed stitches. There may have been fractures to uh, uh, each of the different attacks. 
Um, but these weren't designed to actually kill them. They were designed to kind of just render them unconscious. Um, the only thing that's different with Barbara Songhurst and Christine Reed is the stab wounds. And when you look at the stab wounds, you look at the the fact of how consistent they are, how close they are to each other. Uh, you could tell that it was it was uh, a frenzied, angry attack. Um, as mentioned, they did find semen in both girls, but don't forget this is an era like. 40, 40, almost 50 years before a DNA is actually used properly. Uh, so back then, all they could do was group it. Uh, and from that, they were able to say it was either group A, group O, or he was a non-secretor, which basically is most of the population. So, so that was entirely useless. Uh, what else have we got? What else have we got? Um... It was uh, Dr. Mant who did the autopsy was there at the trial and he was the one who was able to determine which wounds came first in what order uh, and the fact that it was it was the axe wounds to the head to render the girls unconscious that were first. Um, it's it's hard to determine uh, whether the rapes or the stabbings came first. That's the thing that's kind of not in there because they weren't injured in and around uh, the genital area. Um, you can tell whether the girls were wearing clothes at the time because the, obviously the stab wounds go through the clothes. And if you, on on the um, uh, on my a lot of my online uh, pictures and things like that, I haven't put the uh, autopsy pictures online. They're just with Patreon because it's kind of they're quite unsettling, and I, I I don't want them out in the world, so I've put them on there. So if if you want to have a look at them, there's warnings on them. They're quite grim. Uh, but the clothing is there, and you can see the the, the stab wounds in the clothing as well. Um, so yeah, it's 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 hard to determine whether the girls were raped first, then stabbed, or stabbed then raped. Uh, with Barbara, they said her stab wounds. Uh, she would have taken around three to eight minutes for her to die, uh, because it was vital organs, but it wasn't the heart. Whereas Christine was stabbed literally right over the left breast and the heart. So uh, they said that her her wounds would have meant that she would have died pretty quickly. Uh, they is, there's quite a few different abrasions to the legs and the arms and the trunks. Which, which shows that they were dragged off the towpath into the woods. Uh, the bloody pool around them shows where they were lying when they were when they were um, bleeding after being stabbed. So they would have been there for a, a little while. They can't say how long. Uh, and there was drag wounds as he dragged them uh, across the towpath and down the grassy slope out into the water. Uh, as mentioned, that so the next day after they found uh, Barbara. Uh, they decided to uh, drain the Thames because they knew that they knew they were looking for her bike, but they were looking for the other girl as well. Uh, they drained the Thames, as mentioned. You know, the Thames was drained for about six days. That's up until the point they found the second body, because that's what they were looking for. The Thames was almost completely drained for about an afternoon, um, and that's a lot. That's I, I, I can't remember if I put it in the episode about how many how many gallons of water that is that is millions and millions of gallons of water it's a huge section of the thames uh what they did was they they um they dropped the sluices over at uh teddington lock there's two locks there's one there and there's one slightly further up 
um, and then underneath quite a few bridges and this was on Richmond Bridge there's kind of a, a lock system underneath so they can raise that up it's part of a tip you wouldn't if you walk past it you wouldn't know it so you just think it's a bridge but underneath is the lock system and they can raise it up at any point to, to stop this part of the river becoming tidal if it's going to flood but in this case they used it to drain the river uh, so they drained it as low as they could uh, but they only did it for one afternoon because um, obviously it's, it's the Thames it's it's a vital waterway for kind of uh, traffic and transport and things like that uh, but they part drained it for the rest of the time that they were there um, but as mentioned uh, people thought it was part of the uh, Queen's coronation they were like oh this is fan fantastic look at all the the police divers we're never used to seeing this and it would make sense because don't forget there's lots of displays going on you've got it's a celebration of not just you know the new queen but it's a celebration of kind of britishness so do you know you've got ambulances out do you know and people can go oh what's this and do you know when you can go and have a look around an ambulance and you can see inside a police car and a fire engine and do you know there's displays of where people saw frogmen and they were like this is fantastic they didn't quite realize that uh, they were searching for um uh, dead girls uh so yes so six days later as mentioned they found the body of uh, of christine reed just not far from Ju so just at duke's hole there's a, again there's a, i've done loads of videos for this uh, a video of duke's hole uh just by petersham meadows that's where her body was found uh opposite sides of the water from uh from her friend uh, barbara songhurst uh, and but her bike pretty much remained at Teddington Lock. Uh, that was found roughly around the same day that the body was found as well. Uh, they they found it at uh, the lower end of Teddington Lock, which was where the murder location happened. Uh, it still had the uh, front lamp on it. It still had a saddlebag, um, and it was only about two or three feet from the lock entrance. So there's a little video of that there. You can have a peep at that. Um, it's kind of strange in a way that with with the rapes of both girls, Barbara Songhurst, uh, her jeans were undone. Her, as mentioned, her knickers were ripped, and he raped her. Whether she was first or whether she was second, we don't know. Um, but when you look at Christine Reed, Christine Reed has has literally no. There's no. Uh, she's her, she was wearing blue slacks she's not wearing them anymore and she has no knickers either and she's and neither of them have shoes on uh and also she's more undressed than barbara so uh, it, you know um we don't really know why that happened obviously both of them were wearing bras both their bras were uh properly fastened um but christine was very much more undressed uh it's an odd it's, it's an odd one the, the, there's a lot of details that kind of alfred never gave uh he probably wouldn't have anyway so it's it's hard to it's it's hard to really work out what happened what happened obviously you can't ask the girls because they they died at that moment and there's no independent witnesses uh, so the autopsy of christine reed was uh took place that day uh her father herbert came along and identified the body that must have been a horrible thing to do because she's been in the water six days and she'd already started to to bloat she'd been pecked at she was covered in algae you know it's poor man i mean that's 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 the last image he's going to remember of his daughter as opposed to something nice it's going to be something horrible um so we won't go into the injuries 
same same as same as Barbara really I mean really violent attacks but obviously mentioned there were she had more stab wounds there were deeper stab wounds as well she'd instead of instead of two stab wounds I can't remember how many Barbara had uh oh yeah no it's a uh, uh Barbara had three and Christine had six uh Barbara's stab wounds went down about three and a half to four inches Christine's went down about six and a half inches uh oh so whether he used a different knife we don't know uh maybe that's a possibility maybe he maybe had two knives with him we don't know uh but Christine definitely had defensive wounds on her arm she had cuts along her left forearm uh bruises to her upper and lower limbs as well um and uh as mentioned she had injuries to her perineum so it's suggesting that her rape was more violent than barbara's um what else we got obviously the police had lots of pieces of information to go with the case but it's you know don't forget a lot of them were in the thames for many days uh that they had no fingerprints they had no uh witness statements they had no sightings. They they didn't have anything of his uh, around the times of the murder. They had to wait until much later. So th- they were really kind of groping about in the dark to try and find something to uh, to link it all together. And that's, interestingly, so almost three weeks later, the mur- the uh, murder, the uh, attack on... Uh, oh, come on, brain. Uh, Patricia Birch. So my brain all of a sudden just switched off at that moment slurp of tea which has now gone really cold so um yeah patricia birch is an odd one because she's she's as mentioned she's not a teenager she's 49 years old but that seems to be his thing he doesn't seem to have a type he seems to have lone females isolated space he doesn't seem to have a specific type that he wants although he is kind of obsessed as he mentioned with uh uh young virgins as mentioned in the in the story you know he says i will go i will go far um just to get a bit as he says i.e sex from from a girl who hasn't had it before um should we do his statement on that i was just having a look at the statement of uh, that he uh gave to do with the attack on patricia birch and i think we've kind of covered it in the episode Oh, yeah, no, we did. So we covered it very much at the start. This was the one where he said, um, basically, he he, uh, he he went into Englefield Green to kind of meet up with a girl called Shirley Cox, who lives there. She, he couldn't see her, so he went for a ride at Windsor Great Park. Uh, he saw Patricia coming towards him. They said good morning to each other. He carried on for about 200 yards, and he says, for some other, some reason or other, I turned and followed her. Yeah, for some reason or other. Yep. Uh, I caught up with her and asked her where Holly Tree was. She couldn't explain it to me fully and started to give me directions. I couldn't understand her, so she offered to show me the gate out. As we started walking along, I grabbed hold of her, placing my left arm around her neck under her chin. I asked her to go to the bushes with me, but she refused and struggled to get away. She then talked me out of it and offered me her money. I think I took it. It was about 17 shillings. I jumped on my bike and rode away. So that was his statement, uh, which, as we know, was half true. Bits of it were true, but not all of it. Um, They quizzed Nelly about this, uh, 
about their sexual relations as well. And she said, of, don't forget Nelly is his wife. And she said, our sexual relations are quite normal, given the circumstances. I do not think the trouble he is in now, i.e. the rapes, has caused that. He has been quite normal during our sexual relations. And I cannot understand why he has done this to the woman at Windsor Great Park. Uh, okay, so we won't go into... Obviously, you know that the police picked him up at that point And he hid the axe under the back of the policeman's car. Uh, as mentioned before, he already committed that attack. He he cycled down to Ogshot Heath, which he knew because he'd raped there before. He did what he usually did. He got to Sandy Lane. He put uh, his bike in his bag behind some trees. So, you know, he'd use it for his escape. But he was standing there with his kind of axe on him. He would have seen it's daylight. He would have seen the police car coming towards him. Um, I'm wondering whether, because the builders who were in the back of the car said they spotted him and said to the police that's them and the police took those builders back to Oxshot railway station so they could get home it's literally around the corner and then the police would have come back so that may have given him time to go all oh, right i need to uh i need to ditch my bike ditch my axe and maybe i don't know maybe the car police car come around the corner and he was like shit what i'm gonna do with my axe i'll shove it down the back of my trousers or Maybe that's what he did when he was going to do his attacks. But he, even he said he was definitely there to go and do another attack. As mentioned, uh, he put the, the axe under the under the uh, driver's seat of the police car because he knew that when he got to the station, that's where he'd be searched. He wasn't searched in the end because obviously Inspector Bramwell said, this isn't the guy, it doesn't even look like him and he doesn't have a bike or an axe. What an idiot. Inspector Bramwell actually resigned from his position during the trial when it became clear that he had released the the, sus, the culprit. What an idiot. Um, as mentioned, okay, so Police Constable Arthur Koch stationed at uh, Kingston Police Station. Uh, 18th of June, he took the Wolsey, uh, the, the police car, which is a part of his duties. And a standard practice, he gave the car a kind of uh, an inside and out, you know, a bit of a look over. And he said, I found an axe in the back seat of the car. So it's under the driver's seat. The head was under the driver's seat and the handle was poking out. Uh, this was at about 6 p.m. I put the axe in my locker for safe custody pending inquiry. Yeah, whatever. Uh, I went off sick on the 23rd of June, back on the 8th of July. I found it in the locker. I took the axe home. He lived at 59 Selwood Road in Hook. Uh, I put the axe in the toolbox in the shed and I used the axe to chop up sticks on the concrete floor. So by that point, obviously, it had been used many times. No more fingerprints on it. No more blood on it. Uh, and it was blunted. Uh, and because it hadn't been correctly, you know, because if he would have found it, bagged it, tagged it done everything that the police need to do and then then put it in as evidence that would have been perfect but he didn't he took it home which means it's contaminated so it couldn't be used uh, they did actually have a look at the axe later on but they couldn't find they, there, there was some spots of blood on it but they couldn't they couldn't group it uh, what else we got let's go let's go and do some of these letters that he did what time have we got how long have we done We've done almost an hour, so I'm not I'm not going to do too long on this because I don't want you all going. Um, 
Interesting thing, as mentioned, uh, one of the detectives who questioned Alfred Whiteway was Detective Constable Wallace Virgo, who was Wally Virgo, who was a very corrupt cop. This was in his early days when he was starting out uh, at Chertsey Police Station. Uh, so a lot of people will be looking at this going, oh, Wally, well, Wally Virgo's involved in his, his obviously, you know, it's all fraud. Like that, because they've read, they've read too much about Wallace Virgo. But... You know, just because just someone's a corrupt cop doesn't mean that they do every single case they touch is corrupt. It just means, you know, they probably focus on which ones they're, they're going to be palmed off with money on. Uh, what else we got? So obviously, uh, Alfred gave his first statement and that was a complete denial. Even his wife said, uh, even his wife backed up his story. So this was the story. Let's let's do some of this. These are some of the statements. Oh... So he said he was married to his he's married to his wife Nelly. They had housing difficulties because uh, she was living with her mum. Uh, night of the murder, uh, they met around seven thirty p.m. and stayed together till about eleven thirty. My wife and I, and he said, my wife and I have discussed the Teddington murders and worked out that we were together that night. Well, that's useful, isn't it? So that's before they even. Uh, uh, I've given a statement the two of them have already colluded together about where they were and what they were up to um uh he said that he was at home with his mother until 7 30 he cycled to king's road to see his wife he met her at the house uh went with their daughter in a pram uh, to canbury gardens which is opposite they were kind of there until about 6 30 unfortunately they had a bit of a quarrel obviously things aren't going too well for them he went home had tea left again at 7 45 p.m uh this is all kind of hours before before the attack uh let's scoot on ahead uh he was on his bike he admitted he was wearing his green gabardine trousers and a blue shirt he doesn't seem to change his clothes it's it's quite odd as well because uh on on his shirt as well they still had the blood stains on the sh- uh, some blood on the shirt and they were like mm, wash your shirt mate he seems to have wash washed his uh brothel creeper tr- uh, shoes but he didn't wash them well enough uh what else we got uh he went so he went back to cambria gardens met up with his wife and he says shortly after eleven thirty p.m he hopped on his bike and he went home by way of kingston bridge um which is in, uh, if from there to go to Teddington Lock is a mile and a bit north, he immediately went west. So he was going. He says, according to this, he's going entirely the opposite direction. Uh, and then when he got home, his uncle, Uncle Langston, uh, was asleep in the kitchen. That's where they both slept. Slept, and uh, he saw him there. Although Uncle Langston didn't give a, a statement, so we can't actually prove that. Uh, Nelly at the time backed all this up she said that uh, she identified what clothes he was wearing she said what time they they disappeared they didn't have sex that night which she said was unusual for them because they normally did but obviously they'd had a bit of a quarrel uh, and she was heavily pregnant and the baby was crying Uh, not to suggest that this was the reason why he committed the murders but he seems to have a very very high sex drive and he seems to need sex constantly constantly (sighs) maybe he should just learn to masturbate that would just that would just solve his problem uh what else we got so by that point uh 
uh, Detective Superintendent Herbert Hannon gets involved, aka the Count. He he already knows that Herbert Whiteway is the key suspect in the both rapes, and he's already heard about this case, and especially about the axe and the bike and the the saddlebag and things like that. And he's already right, right. This is this is my my suspect. I'm going to go straight in, and he starts questioning him. Ah, poor. I've got a. My energy's dropped again. Do you know why? Because I need another quaffy. Need another quaffy. I've still got to get get to. Um, I've got to do a cycle today to do do another video for this. Poor dear. And then hopefully to the pub. Ooh, the pub. That'd be nice. So, uh, he, uh, when he was uh, arrested for the, the both rapes, he was uh, remanded at Brixton Police Station, and he stayed there right through right up until the court case. Um, obviously, he was quite a, a, a serious kind of um, a suspect. And they were like, right, we're going to keep you in here and make sure you can't leave, which they did. Uh, he was, for a while, he was in the hospital wing. They were keeping an eye on him because he'd uh, he'd already started to s- suggest that, oh, do you know, maybe I'm a little bit mad. In the hope that he could kind of, if it did turn around that he was going to be found guilty of the murders, then he could turn around and go, oh, I'm going to use the insanity plea, which people seem to jump over all the time because it seems to be a way of, especially in this era, in that era, saving themselves from getting... Uh, executed so let's not do that let's not do that one uh it was just that was just stuff about the patricia birch attack which we've already done this was quite good so 8th of july 1953 this was the point when um uh uh, herbert hannon uh, detective herbert hannon was basically just questioning him this is the, the very simple technique that uh detectives use a lot is that you interview people many many times and you you keep going over the same questions and then getting them to go back over their answers again and again and again and see how many times see how often their kind of answers deviate but also with um detective hannon what he would do is he would just engage in a very casual conversation with him and kind of going oh yeah how did you get there how did you do that how do that because by by making him comfortable he could that's how he was able to get all the information out of him about what kind of knives he's got what part of the towpath he uses the fact that he does know about teddington lock that's where he would kind of go swimming with the dogs swimming with the dogs so there's some dogs going past and i said dogs uh, that's where he would go swimming in the lock <sighs> Yeah, I hope a clown doesn't walk past. Uh, where he goes swimming in the lock. So it's all these little details that he was able to trip him up on. Um, but what makes this difficult is, don't forget, this is 1950s. So all, all of these statements, uh, the statements were written afterwards, but everything that kind of Alfred Whiteway says was jotted down in a notebook at the time. Probably not by Detective Superintendent Hannon, but probably by one of the detectives who was sitting in the room as well, taking notes. So Hannon does the talking, another one takes the notes. So you have to rely on that. This is at least when well, the UK they weren't recording um, interviews until the late eighties, early nineties. So uh, yeah, so the, the, you you kind of relying on the on the policeman's statement that what they've taken down is accurate. Oy, 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 oy. Uh, 
yeah he mentions about uh, the axe or he gives good details about it which is really good i mean he's literally signing his own death warrant at the moment by just chatting but the thing is he's nervous he's nervous as a policeman there he's tired he's being asked again and again these are like multiple interviews over hours and hours and hours and he keeps and even worse his girlfriend his his wife is being repeatedly brought in and then they're checking with her what he says and then they're going back to him saying well your wife says this and obviously he's a person who's easily wound up uh and this is where everything starts to fall apart uh so there's a lot of stuff in here oh yeah okay uh the blood on the shoes i kind of glossed over this in the story so the brothel creepers um after the murder obviously they knew that because of the amount of blood at the scene uh that the whoever had done the murder would have had a lot of blood on their on their clothes but also in their shoes and let's not forget that he's wearing uh, brown leather shoes but it's also the crepe soles so they absorb a lot of a lot of blood they're quite light as well so um apparently after the murder he took them home he tried to wash them in the sink he washed them but they weren't particularly good he was still wearing them the same shoes he only seems to have one pair of shoes uh, after the patricia birch attack and when he was arrested after that so uh detective hannon took those shoes and said i'm gonna have those uh they were sent to dr nichols of the police laboratory at scotland yard however there were traces of blood found in the seams and the eyelets he had washed his shoes uh, but he hadn't done a very good job there was a strong reaction to blood found around the eyelets of the shoe um he mentioned that uh hannon mentioned that to alfred whiteway and said well, yeah we found blood in your shoes and he said oh yeah i cut myself shaving hannon was like well you know that's there's too much blood found on there on your left shoe to be um uh, consistent with a shaving cut couldn't give an example about that but it was identified as human blood uh, but the sample, as mentioned, was too small to group, so they couldn't tell whether it was Group A or Group O or any of the other ones, uh, which was the only way, really, you could kind of identify whose blood it was. Um, Barbara's was A. Alfred's was O. I think Christine's was O as well. So, that, I mean, that's really all you could identify it down. You couldn't pair it down any more than that. Uh, so by this point uh he's already been charged with both rapes and he's starting to get nervous he's starting all of his stories are starting to get very conflicted um sorry someone's going past they're going past at a relatively slow speed with some which is a miracle for a mega wide beam and that is a biggie they're actually going past at a moderate speed miracle miracle they must be new oh i see there's another boat going past at the, oh, at the same time yeah three boats going past at the same time and one mega wide beam idiots anyway um so yeah on the 30th of july this before this is literally around the time that, that everything's all coming together he said on that sunday i was wearing my crepe soled shoes and they have never been bloodstained the only time I ever cut myself is uh, is when I cut myself shaving or fell off my bike and grazed my right eye. Yeah, as if your shoes would be that covered in blood. Uh, I've been told that one of my crepe-soled shoes has been in a lot of blood. I don't believe it. I think you are putting one over on me. 
I don't want you to see my wife any more. She is going to hospital on the 30th of August to have a baby and you should leave her alone. There is nothing else I want to tell you. So I think that really tells you about his kind of mental state at the moment that he's really starting to lose it. He's not the sharpest tool in the box, hence he's already given away a lot of this information. Uh, same day, Hannon uh, meets with him again, puts down the Gurkha knife on the table uh, um, and shows it to him. Obviously, the Gurkha knife isn't the one that they believe committed the stabbings. They believe it was a sheath knife, but because they'd found the Gurkha knife, they're able to go, well, we found this one knife, so therefore, he, st- he-, he pretends that he's not really that bothered about it he goes oh well okay you found that in the water great um they they start talking to him about his shoes about the fact about the blood staining as mentioned in the story hannon kind of conveniently forgets to add the fact that you know they can't group the blood on it all they say is you've got shoes it's got blood on it you know they kind of leave it at that leave it up to his imagination and then then it goes into this obviously he puts the axe on the table and uh that's it i mean for him that is the major murder weapon which interestingly it wasn't uh it wasn't the one that did the uh, the injuries that would have killed both girls but it's the the identifiable thing the black yellow 20 inch axe sees it and he goes uh, alfred whiteway goes it's all up uh you bloody well know it was me eh that's buggered me what a bloody mess i'm mental uh my head must be wrong I must have a bloody woman. I can't stop myself. I'm not a bloody murderer. Block him, yes, every time, but not kill him. Block him is his word for uh, shag and rape him. Uh, I only see one girl. Uh, she came round the tree where I was stood. I bashed her no harder than the other kid. In the story I wrote, I wrote uh, the girl in the park. So you knew which one it was because the other kid that doesn't really identify who it was she went down like a log then the other screamed out down by the lock i never saw her till then i nipped over and shut her up uh two of them and then i tumbled uh the other one knew me if it hadn't been for that it wouldn't have happened i.e the murders uh suggesting that you know as he had done with all of the other attacks he'd made them unconscious he raped them and then he would have just disappeared off but obviously because one of them recognized him and all the others were strangers he knew he was he knew he was absolutely screwed um uh he actually said because because the axe was still on the table when he was doing this he uh alfred whiteway said uh put that big chopper away it haunts me um what more what more do they want to know i block them both that's what i can't stop why can't doctors do something uh it will be mental won't it it must it must be i can't stop it once you, his his uh his pronunciation is terrible but this is the way they wrote it down once you tell you sods a bloody lie buggered forever give us it i'll sign it so basically they'd already written up his statement by that point hand it over to him and alfred whiteway signed it off and said yes it's true uh oh here's that letter so let's let's do more on that letter that i mentioned at the very end i only gave you a small portion uh but this was the letter that alfred whiteway sent to uh detective superintendent hannon uh on the 12th of november this was after he'd been found uh guilty uh mr hannon i take it my case is finished would you send my bike and clothes back to my wife's address uh they will do for my younger brother mr hannon you were wrong 
Uh, why you made up that false confession, I can't say. But you knew your word would be more accepted than mine. Don't ever do anything like that again, for it would go very hard for you if you slipped up. People would remember me and my alleged confession, and then they'd be suspicious. Not that it would help me anyway. I played it into your hands too easily. Obviously, I edited all this for the for the episode, so you weren't you weren't bored by everything he says. Uh, you were so positive that it was me that you risked a lot to have me hanged. Well, you have almost succeeded. I don't doubt that you will. Oh, so wrong. It was not me. I could, I could do a lot of things, but never that. I think Mrs. Songhurst knows too. I never saw her daughter ever since they left Sydney Road, so how could I possibly recognise her? Which which makes sense. It's, you know, she was six when she left and now she's 16. So it's entirely different, which is why uh, we don't know whether Barbara Songhurst went Alfred, Alfred Whiteway. I kind of put that in myself because you've got to have a connection there. But he definitely, he de- he says he definitely knew that she knew him. So there must be, it must be a way that, of how how that connection happened uh, whether he knew at that point that it was barbara uh, we don't know but she definitely knew him and that that kind of was the end of her life really um uh bah, 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 bah. you he concludes you were smart stay that way but don't try it on anyone else you bust up my wife's life for good what about my children what are they going to think my wife knows that I couldn't have done it, but there all will always remain a tiny spark of doubt. It's a good job that I'm finished, otherwise you would have to watch your step. I wouldn't kill you, but uh, you'd do best, but, you'd, but I'd do the next best thing. I wouldn't kill you, but I'd do the next best thing, that's what he said. Well, I can't do either, so you're safe from me. The wife will let me know if you sent my things i.e. the bike and all that signed mr ac whiteway uh, so let's go what, what that other letter that he sent to his mum here we go it's the final one and then we can we can wrap up on that uh it was uh, dearest mother hello ma i hope you are keeping well how's it going back home give my love to all Mum, I'm expecting you up today, but if you can't make it, I'll understand. I'm okay, Ma, fine, and in good health. Uh, I don't do my exercises now. I've given them up. How's Jackie and David? That's one of his brothers and sisters. I hope they are both well. Give my kindest regards to Tommy, his other brother. Uh, I'm glad uh, that he came to court that day. He cheered me up a lot. Give my love to Alice and Ivy. Uh, they did a lot for me. I think Ivy's his older sister, and she was the one who was described as feeble-minded or uh, mentally disabled. Uh, I feel at last that I, I am wanted, but uh, one always seems to find that out too late. Don't worry, Ma. You're not the only... Ma- <coughs> oh, dear. That's not in the letter. It doesn't say cough. Uh, don't worry, Ma. You're not the only mother that lost her son. Well, Ma, the weather has changed a bit. <coughs> it isn't so cold and wet as it was last week. Don't let Gracie and Jackie know when, why, why I'm gone. Uh, that's if they don't know already. So Gracie and Jackie are, are his younger sisters. I'm not scared at all, Mum. Uh, <coughs> why is my throat doing this? Uh, it don't frighten me one bit. 
the only regret I've got is that you cannot claim me afterwards. So obviously after he's executed, his body has to remain uh, buried inside Wandsworth Prison. Uh, I'd like very much to be buried in Teddington. That didn't happen. Uh, but that is impossible, which he says. Uh, I don't like to think of leaving you all behind, but I'll tell you this, Ma. I've done some very rotten things in my life, but this time they are wrong. I never did it, Ma, but I still reckon I deserve to die for that Oxshot affair, i.e. the raping Oxshot. So if anyone brings that up against me, you tell them from me, Ma, that they were wrong. All the, <coughs> All the best, chin up. Your loving son, Alfred. Uh, he was executed on uh, 23rd of December 1953, so end of the year. Uh, hanged at Wandsworth Prison at 9am. They always hang them at 9am. Uh, well, pretty much. Uh, he was executed by Albert Pierpoint, who we have heard from many times before. And the assistant was Joseph Broadbent. Uh, as with all executions, after he was executed, he was left to hang for one hour. They do that as standard just to, you know, to make sure, even though uh, because of the drop, it was a six foot six inch drop. That meant there was a, a one and a one and a quarter inch gap uh, for the dislocation of his spine. All executed uh, prisoners have to have an autopsy afterwards to find out how they died. It's important to make sure that you know, this is meant to be a humane way to die. Uh, therefore the autopsy has to be there to say yes they their death was pretty much instantaneous but just to make sure they're left to hang for an hour so even if they are still slightly alive afterwards they will definitely die of uh oh, of uh, uh strangulation that was a nice nice way to end that one uh so that was that that was that extra mile thingamajig doodah uh, uh flip Whew. My breath, but that was good. That was needed. I, the, you can see why there's there's a lot of things in there that I thought I don't want to give them away early because you know if I mess it up in it at one, I mess up a detail. Not uh, if I give away a detail there that I shouldn't. I'm saving for it too because as I was going through, I was kind of I planned each episode, but sometimes like the autopsy of Christine Reed was going to be in at one, but then I realised it needed to be in at two, as did the autopsy. It, of Barbara in Act 2 as well and I was going to introduce uh, Alfred earlier in episode 1 but then I realised actually uh, because there was already the red herrings there of kind of the the picnic that was going on and you know the last people to see alive that was interesting so I didn't want to sully it so I thought right let's just keep waiting hold so there's a lot of stuff that I kept going oh let's hold that back hold that back so yeah I have to be careful about that which is why the last episode was a bit of a beast it was for me because uh, at the end, I was like, right, there's a lot we've got to cover. We've got to, I've got to recover all the ground we've already done. Both rapes, both murders, Alfred's back history, how he met his wife, their sexual relations. Oh, just everything collapsing around him and his arrests and Hannon. And oh, that was a hard one to, to do. Anyway, that's done. That's done. So I hope you enjoyed that. I'm going to sign off now. Have a cup of tea. I don't need to edit this. this. This is great. I'm going to top and tail it. This is lovely. Can't wait. Oh, I'm not going to remove a single word. Oh, and relax. If I would have looked at this on, on a regular Murder Mile one and seen at like an hour and a half, which this is now, I would have gone, oh, Jesus, this is going to be a four, four day edit. Oh, but with this, 
no editing. Right, that's me done. I'm going to have a cup of tea, going to have some uh, uh, some biscuits, I'm going to have a cycle, I'm going to go to the pub. Socially distanced pub, of course. Uh, that's good. Have yourself a good time, and I will see you next week for something different. Best wishes. Lots of love. Bye-bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.